Amen. Well, I know one or two of you have not been impressed that we have put Esther away, but if you would turn on this third Sunday in Advent to Numbers chapter 24, I think we'll find it is not an entirely different story being told. Numbers 24, I think that is page 133 in the Visitor's Bibles. And this morning we are going to read verses 15 to 19, the words of a very reluctant prophet who... uh, after a long saga and uh, being made an ass of by a talking donkey, has just been through three failed attempts to curse God's people on behalf of their enemy, the king of Moab. And as he is finally, perhaps, beginning to learn his lesson, we read this in verse 15. He took up his discourse and said... The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of a man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the city, that is the city of Moab, those attempting right now to curse and destroy. Let's bow our heads. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him, Lord, the babe, the son of Mary. Loving Father, show us more, we pray, in the Son you sent into the world for us. Help us to feel the weight of his coming and to stand in awe at his glory and to worship the King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, what do you see when you look down at the one in the manger? Often we spend all our time over Advent busily telling people what not to see. Don't just see a baby. Don't just see a teacher. Don't just see gifts and commercialism and food. But what if we are so busy telling people what not to see that we've lost our wonder at what is there? Let me read you some advice from the man who, for me at least, has become the true Father Christmas, not St. Nicholas, although they lived at almost exactly the same time and fought the same battles. But this is the man who wrote the first great book, marveling at how and why God became man, a preacher called Athanasius. And here's what he says at the end of it all. In short... The achievements of the Savior brought about by his incarnation are of such a kind and number that if anyone should wish to expound them, he would be like those who gaze at the expanse of the sea 
and wish to count its waves. And so here I am standing up to preach for another Christmas and all I can really do, he says, is point at a few little waves and think year after year, I wish I had the power to take in the great expanse of the sea and show you that so that we could all marvel at everything there is to see in the incarnate Lord Jesus and the eternal Son of God coming into the world to save mankind. I wish we could see it. All we can do is look at a few little ripples. But perhaps what we can manage this year is to take one of those little waves of all the rich and varied ways that the Bible talks about the coming of Jesus into the world and fill that picture out in ways that we haven't quite seen before. One of the great themes of Advent is this picture of light pushing out the darkness. We light candles at this time of year. We hang little stars on our tree. We draw them on our cards. We put them on our mince pies. I guess we have a vague idea of why, why we love stars. What could be more Christmassy than little lights and starlight? After all, who doesn't know the story of that miraculous Christmas star guiding the way to Bethlehem? But the passage we just read is one of the first great Christmas texts of the Bible, and it seems to have the star all wrong, doesn't it? Because it tells us the truth that I'd love to fill our hearts this Christmas, the true star of Christmas, the true light is not the one that points to the stable, but the one who fills the manger. Look down at that baby, and there is more there than there are waves in the sea. But have you ever thought of him as swaddled starlight? Something bigger and brighter than all the night sky. Here is the undying light of heaven, the bright morning star wrapped in strips of cloth and laid into a trough for us. And so this Advent, inspired by that other Father Christmas, we are going to take three little glimpses at the dawning of light. What does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world. Well, the Bible paints a far richer picture with it than I'd seen before, beginning today in Numbers 24. What does this very first Christmas star in the Bible represent? Well, the star here is a symbol of rule and authority. The one who lies in the manger is the star who rules the heavens, the one who dashes into pieces princes and nations, who comes to drive out the darkness and reclaim his lost realm here on earth. First this morning, let's have a little look at where this prophecy sits, because it is a wonderful part of the Bible, but perhaps not a very familiar one. We're at the end of a strange saga in the early history of God's people, They've been rescued from slavery and sin, and after a long delay, they are on their way again to the promised land. And so here are the people God loves with a love 
full of grace, who he has plans to build a new world with. And yet what we've seen in these last few chapters of the book of Numbers is a realm engulfed in darkness. Three times now, a rival king called Balak has tried to curse and crush these people who God loves. He's desperate to strangle this little nation at birth before they can plant themselves in the promised land and become a threat to his power. And so he's turned to one of the most famous dark prophets in his world, a man called Balaam. And he's offered to pay him enormous sums of money for pouring out his curses on Israel. But he's had to wait and negotiate pretty hard just to bring him here from his home country because Balaam knows that if God is for these people, there is little he can do. Nevertheless, he's greedy for the money. Even after God made a fool of him in chapter 22 with that talking donkey, he's still eager to give it a go. And so already this story has all the makings of a great nativity, doesn't it? We've got the magician from afar. We've got the donkey. Soon we'll have the star. And he's not much of a wise man, this Balaam. But at least he's learned something now. He will only be able to speak the words that God lets him speak. And so Balak and Balaam resort to every dark, sinister, occult trick they can to try and pour out death and curses onto God's people. Each time they sacrifice seven bulls and seven rams on seven altars because they know that God is against them. He's angry with them, but maybe they can bribe him, twist his arm, persuade him to listen. Each time they climb up onto some high and holy place where Balaam can see the people of Israel and cast his spells straight onto them as he looks at them. But whenever Balaam tries to curse, God fills his mouth with words of blessing. God will not curse the children he's redeemed. He set them apart for forgiveness and life, not for curse and death. And so Balak takes him to another high and holy place. More sacrifices. They get less ambitious, it seems, every time. Chapter 23, verse 13 Try up here, where you can only see a fraction of them. Maybe if it's just a few, God will let us hurt them. But by the third time, Balaam is close to giving up. So far with his sacrifices, he's been dabbling in some sort of dark, occult trick, reading the entrails and the blood, presumably, casting fortunes. But by chapter 24, verse 1, do you see, he doesn't even bother with the omens anymore and the dark magic. He looks out over the wilderness and sees Israel's camp, tribe by tribe, this God-given, God-centered order gathered around the tabernacle. And he sees it's like a little oasis of beauty in a dark, twisted story, almost like a paradise Chapter 24, verse 6, beautiful, fragrant, a garden full of life. And that is what they've been trying to kill and to curse. 
I wonder how that strikes you as a picture of our world, that story. God is doing a beautiful thing, saving a people, creating order and wholesomeness and health. And wherever we see it, we hate it because we see God as a threat to us, like Balak here, a threat to our power, our say over our lives. And so humankind resorts to tricks and lies and all sorts of dark and desperate tactics to close our ears to God and have our way and push his aside to stand against his saving work in the world. God has made a beautiful world, but it has been invaded by hatreds and curse and death. He's made this beautiful race, humankind, but we are sickly and dying and full of curse and corruption. And even here, as he works to remake it, remake us, we pour out our hatred and death on that, attacking everything that he calls wholesome and good, a realm engulfed in darkness. And right as the darkness tries to extinguish this little flicker of grace, right as they're trying to curse, Balaam is forced to prophesy this great Christmas promise about a king who reigns in light. Now, I don't know what you think of when you imagine a star. Maybe you think of distant, faraway worlds and twinkling lights a beautiful, gentle night sky. That is not the picture here, is it? A star in the ancient world was often a picture of the great heavenly powers. It was the stars that controlled people's fates, or so they thought. The stars that people often worshipped. The stars that signaled moments of great destiny or doom. Think how those heavenly bodies are first described in the book of Genesis. God made the sun to rule the day, the moon and the stars to rule the night. Sometimes the Bible compares the stars to angels, sometimes to warriors and armies. They're the host of heaven. And so what is Balaam seeing here in this final oracle? Well, it's a bit of a riddle, isn't it? Him in verse 17 is how he's talked through these oracles of Israel, personified by Jacob, their forefather. But now as he looks out over Israel in the wilderness, it gets very strange. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. There is someone he sees coming from this people, coming from Jacob, But that someone isn't yet standing in front of them on the wilderness. You see, the first three oracles were attempts to curse. But this last one is a little different. And before he spoke, Balaam took Balak aside and he told him what this riddle would be all about. Look up at verse 14. As he introduces it, he says, this time I can't even try cursing them. I'm going to tell you what this people will do to you in the latter days. You see, this oracle is looking forwards to the latter days, the great advent of God, to the coming one who 
When you see him, verse 16, you fall down before someone of such dazzling light that he makes you want to cover your eyes, a star from Jacob. In the next line, the, the parallel line, the explaining line, he's called a scepter. It's another symbol, isn't it? A rule, an authority. Or how about verse 19? He will exercise dominion. A star is a picture of a king, a great power. But this isn't any earthly king to rival Balak. This is a king among the heavenly bodies, one who reigns in light, commander of all the hosts of heaven. Not now and not near, not yet, but surely coming. And he's coming for a purpose, isn't he? He's coming to reclaim his lost realm from the powers of darkness. Look at the end of verse 17. It's where King Balak hears of his fate. Moab, the sons of Sheth, those are the people he rules. They will be crushed. The ones pouring out death and curses right now on Israel, they will be crushed by this star like a bug underfoot. It's language of pest control, isn't it? Crushing your head. Language we first met in the Garden of Eden. Mankind failed to protect the garden, but one day, we were told, born of the woman, would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. Sin and death and hatred like this, they are an invasion in God's realm. They're spoiling and poisoning everything he made good, but a true king cannot let that happen forever. And so one day, goes the prophecy, we will see the return of the king to his lost realm. And if you're missing Esther, let me point out that this return will be wonderful news for fans of Haman crushing. The Amalekites, that's Haman's people, they were the first who ever tried like this to strangle the gospel. And they're singled out in this section for special mention. Look up at verse 7. Israel's king, this coming star, will be higher than Agag, and his kingdom will be exalted. Agag there is a kind of dynastic name for the Amalekites. Remember, he was Haman the Agagite. And down in verse 20, they get their own special mini oracle, along with all the other nations who fought against the light. Every drop of hatred and rebellion has to go. And so he will come to banish death and drive out the darkness. It's why this baby in the manger comes to be known as the morning star. The one that rules the sky, that shines the brightest, the star that right as the night is coming to an end, ushers in the dawn. In the very last chapter of the Bible, Jesus claims this prophecy. This is what was happening, he says, in my first coming, the return of the king. I, Jesus, am the root and descendant of King David, the bright morning star. And so when John sees him in his vision, what's he holding in his hand? Do you remember? Seven burning stars. This king commands the heavens. 
when he's born, the stars shine and rank upon rank of the hosts of heaven, sing their battle songs. When he dies on a cross, the sun is darkened. Heaven itself is put at half-mast to honor its captain. And when he returns, the stars themselves fall from the sky because he is the great undying light that rules all other light. And so how could it be when this great, long-prophesied, eternal king of heaven comes to do battle that he ends up wrapped in cloths to keep away the cold and laying down to sleep in a manger? That is not how we expect it to go if all we've read is Balaam's prophecy here. Who ever heard of swaddled starlight? Well, it tells us that the darkness he has come to battle goes far, far deeper than we might imagine. It's not just out there. It's not just in Canaan. This lost realm that he's come to battle for is humanity itself. Sin and curse and death has invaded us, his treasured creatures. And so for him to win this fight, the king of heaven has to become one of us. The undying star has to become diable, frail, human. And maybe when we look back at this prophecy in Numbers, we realize it's not as foreign as it might have seemed at first. What has happened over these three chapters? Well, God has refused to allow the people he loves to suffer under his curse. And so he takes the enemy's plans to destroy them and he turns it on his head. And best of all, he does that all through the mouth of a dark pagan magician, the second talking ass of the book. And in his final attempt to curse Israel, this pagan magician ends up promising them the greatest blessing God could ever give. The king of heaven is coming for them. Well, what happens when this king comes into the world to save? God takes the enemy's plans to destroy and he turns them on their heads so that in their final and most terrible attempts to curse this star of Jacob, those forces of darkness bring about the greatest blessing God could ever give. And on that cross, Satan receives his crushing death blow. What you see in the manger may not look like some mighty power of heaven, but this human nature of ours is the dark realm that he's come to reclaim. And this weakness and mortality that he takes on is how he conquers. For Athanasius, my Father Christmas, it would have been unthinkable for the loving God to abandon humankind to the darkness. Sin and death are an affront to his power. And so in God becoming man, we're looking at a king reassert his claim over what he's made. Listen to this from Athanasius. It could be Tolkien writing here, couldn't it? As when a great king 
has entered some large city and made his dwelling in one of the houses, such a city is certainly made worthy of high honor, and no longer does the enemy or bandit descend upon it, because it's reckoned worthy of all care with the king of kings having taken residence. So also does it happen with the king of all, coming himself into our realm, dwelling in a body like others, Every design of the enemy against human beings has henceforth ceased, and the corruption of death, which formerly prevailed against us, is perished. It's wonderful, isn't it? The return of the King of Light. Somehow, in this line of Jacob, a line of human beings, a woman will give birth to a star, and his light will push out every threat. And the point of this weird and wonderful story, these desperate attempts to curse and destroy, is to help us rejoice in the truth that nothing can stop his coming. Not all the dark magic the world can muster, not its most powerful prophets, not its richest rival ruler, not all the hordes of hell, or all the might of man. Perhaps right now it feels like there are so many corners of our lives where the darkness still rules and the king hasn't shone, where we resist and resist and resist him and the battle feels hopeless. And we can sink into defeatism, can't we? Stop struggling, despair, even stand in the way of his work in making us new. But that is when it's always a great help to look more closely at the one who came for you. There's always more to see, isn't there? If you belong to this king of light, then the wonderful comfort here is that you are not for the darkness to have and you are not for death to hold. He came to push those things out of his realm and to push them out of our hearts and to keep them out for the rest of time. And he will reign in perfect light forever and ever. So let's rejoice in the coming king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings, bright morning star, we praise and adore you who in your love refuse to abandon us to darkness and to death. We praise and adore you who came all the way down from the brightness of heaven to a mother's lap and a wooden cross who dignified our humanity with your presence and fought for it with your life. And so we praise and adore you that we who you have claimed are not for darkness and death to hold. Help us, Lord, to rejoice with courage and confidence in your unstoppable rule of light. Amen.